Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so for today, we are going to be discussing uh, shoulder impingement and conservative management of rotator cuff injuries. So most of this information we're going to be pulling from the current concepts book. So we'll kind of make some notes as we go throughout on different figures to look at or tables and also which page we're looking at. So if you want to go back and kind of take a peek at that um, and see exactly what we're discussing, uh, we'll try and make that easy for you. We also want to make sure that we note that a, um, you know, just kind of going over the general concepts of this, but this definitely doesn't replace reading the current concepts. Uh, we highly encourage you to still go through and read and take notes and make sure that you know this information really well. We're not going to necessarily cover every single detail or every study that they discuss in here. So it's important to make sure you go through and do that on your own. Um, and I'll also be linking um, through MedBridge. They've got a couple different shoulder um, lessons on there. So I'll go through and link in the show notes how to go directly to those. So um, Amanda's going to discuss impingement to begin, and then I'll go over some of the different types of management uh, that they recommend. So Amanda, whenever you're ready, you can get started. So this kind of starts on page 21. We're going to basically discuss the different types of impingement and kind of what leads our patients to the point of having impingement. So the first one they discuss in their current concepts is primary impingement. And that's a direct result of the compression of the rotator cuff tendons between the humeral head and the overlying anterior third of the acromion, the coracoacromial ligament, the coracoid, or the AC joint. So kind of depending on what position they're in, um, it can be compressing against any one of those structures. This is what you're also going to see termed as subacromial impingement, probably the most popular, most common type of impingement you're going to see. However, I also think that just because it's the most commonly diagnosed one, I sometimes will see this misdiagnosed and sometimes they have something else going on that presents like a primary impingement. Anyway, though, the compressive forces against the acromion with the shoulder in those elevated positions are estimated at 0.42 times the body weight with peak forces occurring between 85 and 136 degrees of elevation, which will correlate to a positive arc sign. So if you're seeing that in the clinic, it's probably a primary impingement syndrome. Um, but know that the um, peak force is at 0.42 times the body weight. That's pretty significant for the arm. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so uncomfortable for patients. So near outlines three stages of primary impingement. The first one they describe is edema and hemorrhaging. And that results from the mechanical irritation of the tendon by the impingement occurred, incurred with overhead activity. So you're going to see this stage often in your younger patients who are athletic, and this is considered the most reversible with conservative management. They're going to present with a positive impingement sign, a painful arc, and what they describe as varying degrees of muscle weakness. And in this stage, you really want to consider, are they, do they have a true muscle weakness that would, you would expect to see in something like a rotator cuff tear, or is it weak compared to the uninvolved side because they're having pain when you give them resistive testing. So just be aware of that. Sometimes when patients test weak, it doesn't mean they're truly weak. Sometimes it's a pain response. Stage two of NEAR's three stages of primary impingement is termed fibrosis and tendinosis, tendinitis, and that results from repeated episodes of mechanical inflammation, and it may include thickening or fibrosis of the subacromial bursa. 
This is going to be more in your middle-aged patients, typically 25 to 40 years old. Stage three is defined as bone spurs and tendon rupture. So this is the result of a continued mechanical compression of the rotator cuff tendons. So it's really a true progression from stage one and stage two. Sometimes this stage is associated with a full and a partial thickness tear of the cuff. Sometimes you're going to see a biceps tendon lesion. And a lot of times in this stage, you'll also see bony alterations of the acromion and the AC joint. So whether they have some AC joint arthritis or they have a hooked acromion or something of that nature, you're going to see that in stage three. Um, and that's, again, like I was just saying, the native shape of their acromion is going to be particularly relevant in this population. That being said, I think it's important to review the three types of acromion. So a type one is going to be flat and it's associated with only 3% of full thickness tears. So if someone has a, you can tell on an imaging report, if they have a type one acromion, it's unlikely that if they have a cuff tear, it's caused by the shape of their acromion, only 3%. Type two is defined as curved. Um, so that's kind of in the middle. And then type three is what they call a hooked. And in 70% of um, cadavers with a full thickness tear, there was a um, type three acromion. So again, if someone has a hooked acromion and they have a rotator cuff tear, you can be pretty confident, about 70%, that that's a factor. So um, there is, in current concepts, a good picture of those um, on page, I believe it's on page 21. Um, so just if you're not familiar with that, please take a look at those. Um, the next one is secondary impingement. So this is caused by impingement or compressive forces. Um, resulting from underlying instability of the GH joint. So this is where you're getting an increased humeral head translation in that anterior direction. It's causing um, biceps, tendon, and rotator cuffs to be impinged along the front side of that shoulder, shoulder complex. I think generally speaking, you're going to see this in younger people who generally are going to present with those signs and symptom of, symptoms of instability. Um, we are planning to do a whole nother section on instability, another podcast episode. So I think that that will come up again. Um, but obviously that's going to be treated similarly, but it's a little bit different of a factor in terms of what, what you need to address more so than the primary. The third type that they talk about, they term tensile overload. This is from heavy repetitive eccentric forces incurred by the posterior rotator cuff during the deceleration and follow-through phases of overhead sport activities, and that can lead to a failure of the tendon. So they specifically relate it to sport activity. I would also encourage you to have a heightened sense of this in any kind of manual laborers that you have that are doing overhead work. Um, they can be, be um, subject to this tensile overload also. It's classified as a tendinosis rather than a tendinitis because the tendons taken from areas of chronic overuse do not contain large numbers of macrophages, lymphocytes, or neutrophils, but rather it's a degenerative process that's characterized by the presence of dense populations of fibroblasts, vascular hyperplasia, and disorganized collagen. So it's not truly from uh, that acute inflammatory type um, response of the body inside the tendon, um, which would be more of a tendonitis. It has to do more with that degenerative process within the tendon, and that's termed tendinosis. So I would make sure you understand the difference between those. The authors do note that it's unknown why tendinosis is painful, given the absence of the acute inflammatory cells. Um, and it's really not understood well why the collagen fails to mature. So 
you know, I think the jury's still out on some of that, but I would certainly be aware of the difference of those. Moving into page 22, they talk about macrotraumatic tendon failures. So these are previous um, or single traumatic events. They can be acute or subacute usually, um, where an, a, the forces during the event, whether it be a fall, whether it be lifting something, dropping something, whatever the event or injury was, exceeded what the tendon was able to tolerate. So sometimes if these are severe enough, it'll include a bony avulsion of the greater tuberosity where some of the cuff attaches. And 30% or more of the tendon must be damaged to produce a substantial reduction in strength. So that kind of correlates to what I was saying before about really checking to see whether or not your patients are weak and painful or they truly have a weakness because for that strength deficit to be presentable, they need to have 30% or more of the tendon damaged. These macrotraumatic tendon failures can include repeated microtraumas and and degeneration over time, which can cause a weakened tendon. I think clinically often what I see in these cases is that they have these, you know, maybe they were falling into that tensile overload section for a while, you know, and they're a heavy manual labor or they're an athlete or something of that nature. And they continue to push through that. And then they have some kind of event, you know, they'll still recount some event to you, but based on certain imaging studies and whatnot, the physicians or surgeons will be able to tell what kind of quality the tissue is in. And that sometimes can correlate to whether or not the person's a candidate for a repair. Um, but I would, my inkling is clinically, I see a lot of people um, that don't necessarily have one event that then leads to this. Oftentimes they fall into that micro trauma and then they have some event that kind of does them in. I don't know. Do you have anything on that, Alexis? I don't. No, I agree. I, I think it's, you know, rarely that it's one specific you know, thing, usually there's some, something else leading up to it. So, yeah. And then the last one they discuss here is a posterior or an undersurface impingement. So this is where, when the shoulder is positioned in the 90, 90 position, it causes the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus to rotate posteriorly such that the undersurfaces of the tendons rub on the posterior superior glenoid rim and they become pinched or compressed between the humeral head and the uh, posterior superior glenoid rim. Um, this can be particularly painful, and I think sometimes this is one of those diagnoses that it sees you, but some clinicians don't see it. It's one of those, it's not nearly as common as primary impingement, um, but I would encourage everybody to really check this position out. I can't say it's something I gave a lot of attention to prior to studying for and obtaining my OCS. Now that I check it more often, I see it more often. So just be aware of that. Um, This is often caused by overhead positions in a sport or industrial situations. Um, It can also be caused by an anterior translation of the humeral head um, in that 90-90 position. I think oftentimes you're going to see that in like throwing or overhead athletes, volleyball players, where they're doing a lot of forceful work up in that overhead motion. And then again, the authors suggest to really thoroughly screen this in overhead athletes and overhead workers because it's sometimes missed. So that's kind of a brief outline of the different types of impingement that they discuss. Um, I think Alexis is now going to go ahead and take over and give us some information about managing these types of impingement. Yeah, so we're going to start looking on page 23 in current concepts. They have it titled as non-operative rehabilitation of rotator cuff impingement. Um, And so I'm going to kind of go through just a little bit of what they discuss. Um, and some of the different exercises that are recommended in the research behind those exercises. So 
first of all, with evaluation of these patients, um, you want to make sure you're doing a detailed and systematic approach to their shoulder and upper extremity evaluation in order to identify the specific type of rotator cuff pathology involved and to identify the underlying causes for the clinician to successfully design a rehab program. So for example, just like Amanda was saying, um, you know, kind of looking specifically for is this, you know, probably a primary impingement versus, you know, is it that undersurface impingement or that posterior impingement? Um, it's going to help you develop a more effective plan if you have a better idea of where this is coming from. Uh, so scapular dysfunction can be the underlying cause or can greatly exacerbate symptoms and the injury process. Altered scapular kinematics have been measured in patients with both rotator cuff instability and impingement. So we're going to talk a lot when we go through this about different types of scapular exercises. Um, I know clinically, you know, impingement and just general rotator cuff injuries is probably the thing I see the most. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's probably the shoulder diagnosis I see the most of. Hands down. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think we're all probably very familiar with scapular exercises, but I think understanding, really making sure we go back to the why when we're looking at, um, you know, these different studies that they're going over is important for this test. So, um, when I think so too, getting into, real, oh, go sorry, ahead. I was going to say real quick, I think to understanding the why, you know, when you're talking about case studies, it's going to help you differentiate good exercises from better exercises. And that's what's in turn going to make you a better clinician too. You know, there's not a lot of bad scapular exercises, but there are better scapular exercises. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so getting into the treatment a little bit. So your initial rehabilitation with these patients should protect the rotator cuff from stress, but not function. So we want to keep those muscles working, but we just don't want to stress the rotator cuff too much. Um, so we want to protect the rotator cuff from compression by the overlying coracoacromial arch or posterior glenoid during exercises and activities of daily living. They do note in here very briefly that modalities can be used to promote increased blood supply and to relieve pain. However, the present research is lacking regarding a clearly superior modality or sequence of modalities with early tendon pathology in the shoulder. Um, so they mention ultrasound, e-stem, and iontophoresis, but they really don't go into any sort of detail about, you know, exactly how to dose those modalities or, you know, which one's better or anything like that. They just very brief mention in there, so... Um, the research does support early use of submaximal external rotation and internal rotation isometrics in the scapular plane with low levels of elevation to prevent subacromial contact. Um, so another key component to early management of rotator cuff pathology is that scapular stabilization. So they talk about using manual techniques directly to the scapula um, that are recommended to determine if the patient is appropriately engaging their scapula versus the clenohumeral joint. So we're applying that manual resistance in order to make sure that we can feel that they're engaging the muscles we want them to engage versus, um, you know, the ones that we're not trying to target. Studies have shown a decrease in the subacromial space with the scapula in a protracted position versus a retracted position. Obviously, you know, that's something we see in a lot of these people is they tend to even sit in that sort of forward position. Um, so they're going to be at a higher risk for that impingement. So we want to try and build those retractor muscles to get that shoulder blade back a little bit. Um, and activation of the serratus anterior and lower trapezius force couple is imperative to enable scapular upward rotation and stabilization during arm elevation. 
So studies have shown a decrease in muscle activation of the serratus anterior muscle in patients with glenohumeral impingement and instability. And they talk about using um, rhythmic stabilization exercises for muscular um, co-contraction. So that's on page 24. They kind of discussed that a little bit. Um, so range of motion and mobilization may also be indicated according to the underlying mobility status of the patient. So again, you want to use your examination to determine if range of motion and mobilization exercises are appropriate. So if the patient has any sort of glenohumeral joint laxity, you won't want to further mobilize or stretch them. If they're hypomobile, then you will want to mobilize and stretch them. Um, so that's, you'll see that hypomobility uh, often with patients who are presenting with primary impingement. Um, so with internal rotation, range of motion limitations are often seen in overhead athletes with rotator cuff dysfunction. So clinical examination must determine the tissue involved that is limiting the internal rotation range of motion, glenohumeral injury of the muscle tendon unit, um, or is it restriction of the posterior capsule? So you wanna really look at exactly why that internal rotation range of motion is limited in order to, again, apply the correct type of um, interventions for that. So um, to test the posterior glenohumeral joint capsule, they recommend using the posterior load and shift or the posterior drawer test. So on page 24 in the second column there, they discuss exactly what that looks like. Um, so, and there's figure 20, they show the recommended technique for the examination where the glenohumeral joint is abducted to 90 degrees in the scapular plane. Uh, the examiner is careful to use a posterior lateral directed force along the line of the glenohumeral joint. The examiner then feels for translation of the humeral head along the glenoid face. Patients who present with a limitation in internal rotation range of motion who have a grade two translation, which means that the um, head of the humerus translates over the rim of the glenoid, you should not, they should not have posterior glide accessory techniques applied to increase their internal rotation range of motion because of hypermobility of the posterior capsule, um, which is being shown by that test. So, um, you know, just making sure that you're assessing, you know, is that internal rotation range of motion, is it tight because of some sort of muscular dysfunction or, you know, what does that um, posterior drawer test look like? If it's positive, then, you know, you want to mobilize that shoulder in that direction. If not, then you know, if you're getting that translation, then you want to avoid doing any sort of mobilization of that glenohumeral joint. Um, so they also talk, talk about testing internal rotation um, range of motion with the joint in 90 degrees of abduction in the coronal plane. If you want to apply stretches as needed um, to these patients, you can have them use the cross arm stretch or the sleeper stretch for a home exercise program. Um, there's actually one study that they discuss in here where they compared the cross arm stretch and sleeper stretch and the cross arm stretch showed a significantly greater internal rotation range of motion in those um, who were using that compared to those who were doing the sleeper stretch. And I know, I think there's a lot of clinicians who don't necessarily care for the sleeper stretch. I think the problem that I see with the sleeper stretch is that people don't necessarily follow through with performing it correctly at home. Amanda, I don't know what your experience is with that, but I, feel like I'm always correcting them to make sure they're blocking that scapula um, and lying on it correctly. Cause what'll happen is they'll roll back a little bit and then they're just getting that impingement. Right. Right. Well, and I just find too, yes, I definitely agree with everything you said. If you are going to do the sleeper stretch, um, 
I mean, I've learned kind of through my residency and stuff, there are some techniques to kind of use towel rolls to help block the scapula and make it a little bit Mm -hmm. more comfortable. The other thing I think I really give the cross arm one a lot more because I also think compliance is a big part of it. When we're talking about truly gaining mobility in a joint like the shoulder, doing it once a day when they get up or once a day or twice a day when they get up and go to bed is probably not enough. Um, Mm -hmm. and it just, I think the sleeper stretch can be a little bit aggressive and I think it's a little harder to grade that level of intensity versus the cross arm stretch. I think if you instruct that correctly and they're not just doing like a trap stretch, um, right. Or a tricep stretch, then that can be just as effective because they're able to do it a little bit more frequently throughout their day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense for sure. So I think, um, you know, it's just something to consider and, and they do know that further research is needed to, you know, better define the optimal applications of those stretches. Um, but I think it's just something good to know clinically that if you've been giving the sleeper stretch a lot, you might try switching it up and doing the cross body stretch instead and, and seeing what type of outcomes your patients get that way. So, um, the other thing, and I don't want to get too far into this, um, but there is a discussion it's on page 25 in overhead throwing athletes, um, you know, you'll mostly see that increased external rotation range of motion and limited internal rotation range of motion, um, just due entirely to the nature of what they're doing with their throwing. Um, so there's a a long paragraph where they kind of get into some different information about that. So I would encourage you to read that. I think it's probably a little detailed for, uh, this specific, uh, discussion, but they, they do talk a little bit about that and how to manage that um, and what your goals are there. So um, on page 26, they kind of summarize this by saying the goals in the initial phase of rehabilitation include decreasing pain to allow for initiation of submaximal rotator cuff and scapular exercises, uh, normalization of capsular relationships through the use of specific mobilization and stretching techniques, and early submaximal rotator cuff and scapular resistance training. So the next section that they talk about is total arm strengthening and kinetic chain exercise application. So, you know, you want to include strength and muscle endurance training of the rotator cuff and scapular stabilizers, like we've been discussing, but you should also include training of the entire kinetic chain, including lower extremities, pelvis, and trunk segments. So they note that in here, they don't go into detail. Um, They actually note that, you know, it's kind of beyond the scope of this specific monograph, but I think that's something even clinically to consider. It's making sure that you're looking at the whole body on these people, especially if you do have a throwing athlete with a shoulder injury, there's so much more that goes into that than just their shoulder. So you want to make sure you're assessing them as an entire person and an entire athlete and not just that shoulder. Um, so they talk about, um, in the next section, examples of rotator cuff exercises. So on page 26, you'll see figure 35 is Job isotonic rotator cuff exercises. You wanna make sure that you know these well. Um, Amanda and I were kind of talking about this a little bit before we started recording that, you know, they're exercises that I think we see a lot, you know, post-op and and they're good to apply to patients. you know, especially if they're having a lot of pain. Uh, And so they go through again, and this is where we're going to get into talking a little bit about why and the research behind the why. So um, the exercises, the Joe Bisotonic rotator cuff exercises include sidelining external rotation, 
prone shoulder extension, prone horizontal abduction, and 90-90 external rotation, and that's also in prone. So the sideline external rotation and prone extension with an externally rotated or thumb out position are used first with progressions to prone horizontal abduction and prone external rotation with scapular retraction following a demonstrated tolerance to the initial two exercises. Prone horizontal abduction is used at 90 degrees of abduction to minimize the effects resulting from subacromial contact. So research has shown that this position creates high levels of supraspinatus muscle, muscular activation, making it an alternative to the widely used empty can exercise, which often can cause combined inherent movements of internal rotation and elevation. Three sets of 15 to 20 repetitions are recommended to create a fatigue response and improve local mu muscular endurance. The efficacy of these exercises in a four-week training paradigm has been demonstrated. So increases of 8% to 10% have been noted in internal rotation and external rotation strength measured isokinetically in healthy subjects. Um, additionally, they say the use of these exercises has resulted in improvement in strength and muscular endurance in both tennis players and overhead overhead uh, athletes in training studies. Training of the rotator cuff and scapular musculature has resulted in modification and improvement of the external rotation to internal rotation ratio, improved strength and endurance of the rotator cuff and performance enhancement. So that's kind of just a little bit on why they do the, or why they recommend the Job isotonic rotator cuff exercises. So I would just make sure that you are, um, you know, really comfortable with those and understand those exercises. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to those. No, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, if you're not familiar with those, yeah. I would just make sure you really look at the image and the description of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said, again, that's page 26 and it's figure 35 and they give a little description under each of what to do as well. So they're pretty straightforward. Um, so the next thing they talk about is um, with external rotation exercises completed in standing they should be completed with a towel roll placed under the axilla. So the towel roll application um, has a couple different reasons behind it. So first of all, it assists in isolation of the exercise and controlling unwanted movements. So I think a lot of times we've seen where, you know, you have a patient try and externally rotate their shoulder and they just extend their elbow out. Um, so this allows them, they have to keep that arm against their side. Uh, and so it's a little easier to cue them, you know, to keep their elbow bent and, and keep that towel against their side. So they don't just start to abduct their arm and, and extend their elbow out. Um, it's also been shown to, to elevate muscular activity by 10% in the infraspinatus muscle compared to not using the towel. So you're going to get more of that infraspinatus activation by having that towel roll there. Uh, there's also a theoretical advantage of preventing what's called the ringing out phenomena, which has been shown in cadaver research. So what that is, is they've seen enhanced blood flow um, in the supraspinatus muscle in 20 to 30 degrees of abduction compared to complete adduction. So you get that ringing out if your arm is completely adducted to your side um, and better blood flow if you're slightly abducted into that 20 to 30 degrees. Um, it also creates an adduction isometric contraction, which can increase the subacromial space. So in these people that have impingement and they've got that decreased subacromial space, by having that slight adduction isometric contraction in order to hold that towel at your side, you're going to increase that subacromial space a little bit. Um, so 
the next thing that we're going to talk about is there's a research study that they discuss on page 27 that showed increased infraspinatus activity when the resistive exercise level was at 40% of maximal effort, which indicates more focused activity from the infraspinatus and less compensatory activation of the deltoid. Uh, this study supports the use of lower intensity strengthening exercises to optimize activation of the rotator cuff and de-emphasize input from the deltoid and other prime movers, which often occurs with higher intensity resistive loading. So again, you know, we're really looking at dosing and, and this is going to take a lot of education with your patient of, you know, maybe use the RP scale or something that they can understand a little bit better than just give me 40% effort. Um, but, you know, just being aware that we're not always trying and I'm always cueing patients for this. I don't always want you to be giving 110% effort when you're doing something that's not always going to get us exactly what we want to do because then you'll start to see those compensations. So, um, so scapular stabilization exercises are progressed to include external rotation with retraction, which is an exercise that is shown to recruit the lower trapezius at a rate 3.3 times greater than the upper trapezius. Um, and there's obviously multiple ways of doing exercises um, that include external rotation with retraction. So there's, you know, you can be creative with, with that. You just want to make sure that you're getting that retracted position along with the external rotation. So you're getting more lower trapezius recruitment. Um, you also want to work on closed chain exercises using the plus position, which means maximal scapular protraction. Because uh, that's been recommended to recruit the serratus anterior muscles. And again, there's multiple ways of doing those exercises depending on the patient and, you know, how strong they are and, and what your goals are. So uh, making sure that you're getting that serratus anterior engagement in that plus position. So progress when these patients, when you're, they're able to um, exercises at 90 degrees of abduction in the scapular plane. So the scapular plane is optimal due to bony congruence between the humeral head and glenoid, as well as research finding that the rotator cuff is best able to maintain glenohumeral stability in the scapular plane. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add to any of those exercises we've discussed so far, Amanda, no. or just using the scapular plane in general. I mean, I think that's something I always try and get people to start with just for the sake of comfort and making sure that we're getting the right muscles working and uh, avoiding any of that impingement. I do. I do, I do use the scapular pain a lot, especially initially. Um, I, again, mm -hmm. it's just more tolerable for the patient. I think it's a little bit more functional. You know, a lot of people mm -hmm. don't use straight abduction in day-to-day -day stuff. Mm -hmm. So especially if it's an older right. patient who's really, you know, trying to just do stuff around their house, recreation, stuff like that. I think you're fine in the scapular plane, but I also think sometimes some clinicians fall into the trap of they only work in the scapular plane and then full abduction is never really restored and stuff like that. So I think you have to find that balance and you have to really focus on what the patient's needs are when you're discussing long-term use of avoiding exercises and abduction and that kind of a thing. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. So, um, so as the patient tolerates isotonic exercise with two to three pounds um, and they can also perform rotational training without pain using elastic resistance, then isokinetic rotational exercise is initiated in the modified base position. So this position places the glenohumeral joint in 30 degrees of flexion and 30 degrees of abduction, and it uses a 30 degree tilt of the dynamometer relative to the horizontal. So they, they're talking about this and they know, um, looking at figure 28 for this position. 
this position is well tolerated and allows the patient to progress from submaximal to more maximal levels of resistance at velocities ranging between 120 degrees and 210 degrees per second for non-athletic patient populations and between 210 degrees and 360 degrees per second during later stages of rehabilitation in more athletic patients. Use of the isokinetic dynamometer is also important to quantify objective muscular strength levels and most critically muscular balance between the internal and external rotators. So achieving a level of internal and external rotator strength equal to that of the contralateral extremity is an acceptable initial goal for many patients. However, unilateral increases in internal rotation strength of 15% to 30% have been reported in many descriptive studies of overhead athletes. Thus, greater rehabilitative emphasis may be required to achieve this level of documented dominance. Um, so they talk quite a bit about that internal rotation and external rotation, um, trying to get that balance between the two um, throughout. So just something to note. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've used at all, Amanda, the isokinetic dynamometer for this. I haven't done a ton of that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really haven't in the clinic necessarily, but it's definitely something I'd be yeah. aware of in terms of the OCS exam. It doesn't directly right. correlate a lot to the population that I treat. Um, mm -hmm. I don't treat a lot of throwing overhead athletes. And that's where I do think yeah. you guys are reading this to study. They talk a lot about the overhead athlete. And I think that's a really important population. Um, it really truly is in sports performance and clinics of that nature. But there's a lot of patients that we see with these kinds of diagnoses that don't fall into that. So you have to really kind of use your clinical reasoning to extrapolate some of that information to your average patient. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I mean, I've not personally used the um, isokinetic dynamometer in this population, but like Amanda said, I think it's important to know for the test. So just make sure you kind of read through some of that and have a good understanding of, you know, how these things would apply to these overhead athletes. Um, so, you know, like I said, they focus on the internal rotation, external, external rotation training. So studies showing there, I'm sorry, they discuss studies showing that by working on internal rotation and external rotation strength, you'll also see gains in extension and flexion, as well as abduction and adduction strength for these folks. Um, if you're just training, they've also done studies where they've just trained extension flexion and abduction adduction, and they only show gains in those directions. So you're going to get more bang for your buck in these patients if you're really focusing on external rotation and internal rotation strength in terms of overall shoulder strengthening. So, um, you know, again, thinking about a home exercise program, you know, we want our patients to be compliant. They probably don't have a ton of time. You know, what are we going to get the most out of in this patient population? And it's those external rotation and internal rotation exercises. Um, so the next thing that they're going to talk about on page 29 is there's also um, some discussion on kind of the end stage of rotator cuff rehabilitation and those overhead um you know, sports. And so like Amanda said, I'm not going to get too crazy into this, but um, just make sure you kind of read through that section as well um, as you're planning, you know, the, the discharge phase of those patients. So they note that a multifaceted approach is recommended for determining when a patient is ready for progression to an interval-based sport return pro sport return program, and ultimately to be considered for discharge from formal physical therapy. 
Areas of consideration include normalization of pre previously positive manual special tests, range of motion, strength, and functional status. And I think that obviously applies to anyone that you're seeing in this population. So um, like any other patient, you're going to go back through and you're going to remeasure those special tests. So you might have done some um, near Hawkins, um, and they also mentioned the Yoakum. So, you know, those are some of your traditional impingement tests. You might go through and, and look at those and see if they're now, um, you know, negative versus maybe they were positive the first day. You want to look at that glenohumeral range of motion, look at their strength. Um, and you also want to look at any um, outcome measures that you might do. So those kind of functional indexes, they note um, that research has shown that commonly used rating scales such as the American Shoulder Elbow Surgeons, University of California at Los Angeles, and row scales can be used in athletic populations and can provide valuable information regarding the perception of function. So if you're looking at those kind of overhead throwing athletes, those might be some of the functional indexes that you use for those people. Um, but otherwise, you know, just like any other patient, just being sure you're going back through and reassessing those things prior to discharge to make sure you're seeing what you want to see and that they're hitting those goals and that they've got the strength in the shoulder in order to progress to that home exercise program or the return to sport program. So um, that's kind of it on their discussion of management. Like I said, I would definitely go through and read and I didn't discuss every study that they discuss in here. Uh, so I think it's important to kind of know and have a general understanding of what the research is saying on the you know, which exercises to do and also the why. Why are we choosing those exercises? So, um, Amanda, do you have anything else to add overall with no, I don't think so. management of these patients? Like I said, I mean, I think that we probably all see a ton of this. Right. We're probably all very familiar with scapular exercises, but as Amanda mentioned, I think it's super important to know which, you know, yes, there's a ton of exercises that are good, but in terms of the OCS, what is the best exercise? And you're going to figure that out by understanding the research. Right. I, I think that's the best way, you know, I, and the shoulder was something I treated a lot before my OCS just clinically. And now it's just something that I still treat a lot of. And I feel like I'm so much better at just by understanding a little bit better why some exercises versus others. And I think that, you know, regardless of the OCS exam, that, that this is one of the more helpful monographs. Um, and I think it's outlined well. So if you're not familiar with some of this, make sure you read up on it. Yep, absolutely. All right. So coming up next, we're going to be talking about um, operative management of rotator cuff tears. So those rotator cuff repair patients. And then after that, we'll be also doing an episode on instability. So as always, if you have questions, please send us an email. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning, I will be linking the MedBridge episode or lessons on um the shoulder that is is included in their OCS prep. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks.